0: Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi everyone, welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a show about ecological economics and modern monetary theory. My name is Gabrielle Bond and I am an activist and organiser. I'm with the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group in Adelaide, South Australia and I'm also working with Stephen at Modern Money Lab. How are you going, Stephen?
1: I'm going all right. How are you, Gabby?
0: Good. Thank you.
1: Yes. Um, welcome, everybody. Just for a change, since it's the last show, I'm not going to say who I am. Um, <laughs> we've done 20 episodes and we've released one special since January. And we would like to thank Jimmy and Shane and Joe and Sam and everybody at Cobras Media for giving us the opportunity to do this. They do a great job putting out a range of fascinating programs on a shoestring budget. And we are definitely friends of CoBros Media and you never know, we might be back sometime. But we were never gonna do this indefinitely. Um, uh, and at least for a while, we need to focus on some other things. I'm Me on teaching and writing, cause we've got these new courses, as some of you know, and if we haven't got anything for That's people exciting. to study, we're gonna be in trouble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and Gabby on administration and campaigning. We've never seen ourselves as competing with the many great MMT podcasts out there. So I'm gonna do something else different. I'm gonna advertise everybody else's podcast. And you should be listening to Joe Firestone, Jeff Epstein, Steve Grumbing, and Christian Riley, and Patricia Pino, uh, Scottonomics, and the person whose T-shirt I'm wearing at the moment as well, Graham Elwood too, and a variety of other people. Um, compared to them, Gabby and I are rank amateurs, but we have got to speak briefly over the last six months to a long list of extraordinary people about issues broadly related to ecological economics and modern monetary theory, talking about everything from inflation to climate change, to renewables, to the right to repair. Uh, mm. And all those shows are on uh, both the Kerberos site and the Modern Money uh, uh, Lab site as well. And talking of extraordinary people, our final guest is the person who was also our very first guest on the first series, Fadel. Fadel Kaboob is one of, I'm not going to say the best MMT economists in the world. I'm going to say one of the best economists in the world and the best person to talk to about modern monetary theory, um, ecological sustainability and economic development. Uh, and thanks very much for coming on the show again, Fadel.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for the generous introduction, and thank you, Gabby, for uh, for hosting this uh, this series. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back.
0: It's been such a great um, experience, and we've talked to so many interesting people. I'm um, I'm really. Uh, I'm gonna miss it, but um, yes, we we are trying to put our energy into our um, postgraduate course program, which is going to be amazing. And just as a reminder for everybody, you can find out about that on our website, modernmoneylab.org.au. And if you have a look on the homepage, it, there's a link that will take you to more information about our courses. So please go and check that out. If you're thinking of studying, you can do even just one subject. Um, Stephen and Phil Lorne will be teaching the two foundation subjects starting from September this year. So, yeah, we have a a lot to do and we're very excited and we're really happy with the progress so far. We've had over 100 people reach out to us and say they're interested in doing this, which is just amazing and really uh, humbling as well.
1: All right, Gabby, let's, let's get um, on yes, sorry,
0: let's get on. Yep, sorry, that was the ad. <laughs> let's ah. get, get on to um, Fidel. Thank you. And Fidel has been a big part of this too. You know, you've, you've been so supportive of us. You've come to meetings with our, um, with our university, Torrance University. And, yes, um, he
1: got, he got and, up in the middle of the night to come to a meeting for yeah. which we are immensely grateful. So, um, anyway. So thank you
0: for joining us on this journey. Um, uh, Let's start with Tanzania. So you've been in Tanzania, can you tell us a bit about uh, what you were working on there and what um, is going to be leading on from that trip?
2: So uh, I was uh, in Tanzania last week for a meeting co-hosted by PowerShift Africa, which is one of the most exciting uh, climate uh, NGOs uh, on the continent. Uh, co-hosted by PowerShift Africa in CAN, Tanzania. CAN stands for the Climate Action Network, which is a, a global international network, but this was the uh, the Tanzania chapter that uh, that hosted us there. And the purpose of the meeting was really to bring uh, climate uh, NGOs, uh, uh, climate negotiators from the African continent and veterans uh, in, in this space uh, throughout the African continent, including some of the co-authors of the IPCC report, including the vice chair of the IPCC from Africa, uh, Dr. Yuba Sekona, who's the Mm -hmm. uh, vice chair of the IPCC from Mali, uh, who was our our elder and and really the most senior person uh, on the continent when it comes to these issues. Uh, So he he invited you to participate, didn't he, Fadel? I'm sorry? I think he invited you to participate. Yes. Yes. So he he and a small team of uh, colleagues kind of uh, picked a handful of people to come together to think about issues related to climate action, climate finance, and economic development. And as you as you all know, uh, the uh, the failure of climate action, especially on the on the African continent and, and the Global mm-hmm. South has been almost a failure by design because every time we talk about climate action and climate finance, we neglect to even question the model of economic development or the economic model that most countries use. Um, uh, So the purpose of this meeting was really to bring together the issue of energy, the issue of climate action and the issue of economic development, all in one platform and mm-hmm. the goal was really to to formulate a, a united narrative uh, a coherent narrative that we climate activists and NGOs and, and negotiators would embrace and then hopefully succeed in convincing governments on the on the african continent to form a united front uh, to tackle climate action while at the same time uh, questioning and, and and modifying the engines of economic development on the African mm. continent. And a big kind of elephant in the room when it comes to this issue is the question of fossil fuels, which mm. has not been challenged so far in, in the last COP meeting. And we're mm. hoping that it will be uh, front and center on the table to have uh, a, a global agreement to rapidly phase out the use of fossil fuels uh, which means uh, having also a plan and a strategy to Mm -hmm. transition to alternative fuels to help transition countries especially countries in the global south that depend almost exclusively in in some cases on exports of fossil fuels Um, Mm -hmm. so uh, having a a comprehensive uh, strategy so that we're not just ending fossil fuels and then not having energy sources and not having engines of economic development in, in the global yeah. south
0: yeah. Uh, yeah so that's
2: that was really the the, the purpose of, of the gathering it was wonderful to meet like-minded people from all different uh, disciplines and, and backgrounds and, and have uh, really meet with people who have the right intuition about economics but don't necessarily have the the economics that we've been talking about on, on this podcast. Mm. In, in the MMT community when it comes to economic development with an MMT-informed perspective.
0: Yes, um, so important.
2: And it's, as you know, being, being in Australia, uh, uh, there's, there's a, an international movement that includes a lot of Canadians and Australians and Africans and people from all over the world mm-hmm. to push for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And there is an initiative now that has thousands of signatories, including academics, Nobel laureates, the Dalai Lama. Uh, Dozens Mm. of cities around the world have already endorsed the treaty, diplomats from around the world. And our hope is that we will get this into the actual diplomatic space for heads of states to negotiate a treaty to phase out fossil fuels. And it's for a simple reason. Because when the United Nations Environmental Program a few years ago uh, commissioned a study to look at where we stand in terms of fossil fuel uh, plans of extraction Mm -hmm. versus what we as a globe can afford to extract, it turns out that um, what most countries are planning to extract and burn is about 140% of what we're actually allowed to do if we're going to meet the 1.5 uh, degree yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, limit uh, every fossil fuel
0: company wants to squeeze the last drops out of out of this and they are not prepared to let somebody else or you know give up something that can make them money
2: exactly so so basically what what we have right now if if we agree with the science and it's been very clear from the last ipcc report that the science is very clear about uh, what needs to be done if we were to meet the uh, our collective goal of, you know, leaving a a, a planet that's uh, livable for future generations and uh, and so on. That we're doing one of those one of two things. We're either by by continuing the extraction and the construction of more infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, mm-hmm. or either signing a collective suicide pact to be honest, Mm -hmm. or willingly creating stranded assets and we're duping investors into spending Mm -hmm. hundreds of billions of dollars and holding on to assets that will become stranded assets if we actually get our act together and start phasing out fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's it's criminal, it's fraudulent, and it should be treated as such. And and we have to be very honest about what needs to be done immediately yeah and this is not just within african countries this
1: is african countries and other right um, what people call developing countries uh putting pressure on on governments like the australian government for example we're one of the world's biggest um climate criminals really it, as a it, nation
2: it, it's a we're all in this together so it's not going to be you know few countries making it and others not so mm-hmm. it, it has to be You know this conversation has to take place in terms of what needs to be done immediately to phase out fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and then what needs to be put in place so that we're not destroying economies and destroying people's livelihoods so that we actually build resilient economies without fossil fuels and that includes the research and development that includes the transfer of technology to developing countries that includes climate reparations as in repairing damage uh, with financial resources and with technological capabilities and repairing the global financial architecture. That's part of this problem, uh, which means changing the mode of economic development, international trade, international finance. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, these are issues that were on the table, not on the climate front, but on the economic and international trade and finance front. When we were transitioning out of World War II, Keynes put this on the table immediately. And now, almost a century later, we're going back to repair the damage on the international trade and finance front because we need a better financial architecture for economic development, for a climate transition.
0: Mm -hmm. And And if people
2: people
0: coming coming across these things for the first time, do you have a recommendation for how you can um get your head around these issues do you have uh, a a book that you might recommend to people or uh some talks that they might listen to because it's uh it's a lot to process if you're encountering these ideas um without having that background
2: sure so on on the climate front i think the the best place to go right now would be the latest ipcc report not the full report which is thousands Mm -hmm. of pages But the the way the IPCC produces these reports is it's uh, hundreds of climate scientists who actually review the literature and basically summarize it for the UN to say, this is what the science says about climate change, what causes it, and what are the consequences, and what the models are telling us about the future if we continue on this particular path, and what are some of the possibilities. So they're not really saying anything new. They're just summarizing all the literature in, in one big document. But yeah. then they take a giant document and they write an executive summary for policymakers, which is about 20, 30 pages, which mm-hmm. is a document that most people read. And that's the one that you want to read. And what's yeah. so exciting about that document is that every single line, every single word, every single comma is negotiated and approved by all member states. Mm-hmm. So whatever you see in that document, you can hold your government accountable because they agreed yeah. to it. And they spent hours and hours and days negotiating every single sentence in it. Mm -hmm. And what's so exciting about this last uh, IPCC report, the the summary for policymakers, is that it doesn't use any vague language anymore about climate change, about likelihood and possibility. It's unequivocal language about what causes climate change, what the consequences of inaction are. And yep. lays out some of the, you know, it, it, it doesn't. It's not a document that that kind of uh, imposes on oh, countries what yeah. needs to be done, yeah. but almost kind of makes it so obvious that what needs to be done, and and that's what we're hoping will be spelled out in the next COP uh, meeting in in Egypt this uh, this November is explicitly mm-hmm. having uh, an understanding that without phasing out fossil fuels on a rapid. Uh, schedule we're gonna be in, in big trouble uh, and, yes. and that's really the the, the the big push for for the next thing so for people to to be informed that's probably the the best uh, place to start but in terms of uh, academic literature and websites there's plenty of other resources we can add some of them to uh, to the show notes here uh, including uh, donut economics including project drawdown uh lots of other uh you know very accessible literature about uh climate action and what needs to be done. Absolutely. Project drawdown
0: is something that we haven't really talked about on this show, show very much, but um um that may be something that we can we can explore a bit more in the future. I think that sounds like a great plan. Um, yes, um I was and there's just a thinking website
2: that goes with the with the book by the way uh, project drawdown dot org maybe, or something like that.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Have a look. Um, I was thinking about a a novel that somebody gave me for Christmas, I think two years ago called the ministry for the future. Um, And if you are a person who loves fiction, uh, this is speculative fiction. So looking ahead into the future and uh, based on the the science and technology and uh, the politics that we have now, how we might find ourselves a pathway out of this mess. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I think it, it touches on a lot of things like rewilding. It has it, it brings MMT into the the story. Um, uh, I I thought that was a great book to be able to um, understand the steps that we need to take, but in an in a, in a in an approach that that um, is like a fictional. So you identify with the characters, and you can see yourself in this world. Um, The author
1: has been interviewed on a podcast I didn't mention. uh, I I can't remember the name of now, but by Scott Ferguson. I should remember the name of it. Uh, it, It's Mm. very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, money on the left. (laughs) In Stanley Robinson. Robinson, yeah, Mm. yeah. It's a fascinating book, and actually, it has for me what made me think about that book again was recently the extreme temperatures in India and Pakistan. Yeah, because there is a, a an extraordinarily extreme, uh, frightening climate event at the beginning of that book, mm. which which happens in, in India and starts the whole narrative going. And um, talking of uh, I'm just sort of moving on slightly, but only very slightly and um, to a, uh, a Well, climate is a crisis which is with us all the time, but a crisis which is particularly severe this year. Of course, it's not just uh, climate change, uh, but also COVID and particularly the Ukrainian war. uh, um, Exacerbated by a big increase in food price speculation on Euronext and other exchanges around the world. But we are at the moment living through a period of uh, rapid growth in the price of food. And Mm -hmm. countries that are dependent on food imports, particularly are in a very difficult uh, set of circumstances at the moment. And uh, perhaps over the next few months and year, um, hundreds of millions of people who would not normally um, be extremely food insecure, are going to be facing that sort of situation where they don't have enough food, where they run out of food, uh, and this ties in, I think, to um, Fadel's discussion, which is he, he, he uh, explained so many times of the importance of, of food sovereignty. Mm. Um, how are those African countries where you were you were talking to uh, some of the diplomats and politicians? How are they facing up to, to this challenge at the moment?
2: Well, uh, unfortunately, everything you described is actually in in motion right now Mm. uh, with the uh, massive increase in in food prices and actual shortages because we have to recognize that none of the shipments uh, out of Ukraine have actually made it out. Uh, Very few uh, have have made it out, and it looks like logistically it's extremely difficult to reroute uh, Ukrainian exports, using rail for example just because of the the rail size is actually not compatible um, with with neighboring countries so it's going to be very slow transition so um, again a resolution a peaceful resolution to the conflict will will help ease this this tension but on top of the actual shortages and the higher prices what we're seeing is the all the future prices um six months forward all of those contracts are, are are sky high Mm-hmm. um uh, central banks around the world especially the fed raising interest rates that makes the cost of borrowing the cost of uh, financing uh, the the debt of the global uh, south even even more painful so we're we're looking at a potential global south debt crisis for for a handful of countries at least in in the next mm-hmm. uh, few years we're looking also at energy prices which includes uh, gets into the cost of shipping the cost of uh, pumping water for for irrigation the cost of fertilizers all of this um doesn't really bode well for for global food prices at least for the next six months even if everything stops today and we restore peace and everything else uh, a lot of those costs have been locked in uh, already um so the, the the and this is this is something that uh, you know, is really the result of the global economy having been reorganized since the 1960s, uh, more or less, to have only a handful of major producers of wheat, corn, soybean around around the planet, and and that yeah. happened in the aftermath of uh, of of independence of most of the countries in the global south. Yeah. Europe, in particular, looked around and said, "Well, we're not going to depend." you know, our livelihood is not going to depend on all of these former colonies. We need to uh, restore food sovereignty on the continent. And and that Mm. was the Common Agricultural Policy, uh, CAP, um, which was designed to heavily subsidize European farmers to Mm. uh, produce uh, food, uh, core staples, at a fraction of the cost almost of what farmers in the Global South were able to to do. Mm. And as a result, you know, producers of wheat and corn and soybean and most other countries in the global South couldn't compete. So they switched to other crops, cash crops, and they started importing wheat and corn and soybean and sunflower seeds from uh, these major blocks that formed because it wasn't just Europe. Uh, The U S did the same, Japan did the same, Australia did the same. And the Soviet Union at the time, which is Russia and the Ukraine today. So those are the main producers of all of these commodities and when two of them uh get into a conflict russia and, and the ukraine we have major disruptions um so that's why we're, we're talking about the, the concept of food security is is nice and all but it doesn't really work in in these situations um so you add it to
1: add it to a drought in brazil and parts of the us and china it just yeah, it just and, makes the
2: situation even even worse and and now you see a situation where some of the smaller mid-sized type of uh exporters are worrying about their own food security and they're imposing bans on exports uh india mm-hmm. started doing this in 2008 we've seen brazil and russia and other countries banning exports of key commodities so that and adds- to that
0: for political reasons too Like the, the, you know, if the, if the current government is facing an election, it's a very populist thing to do, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, So uh, all of these things uh, are are a good reminder that we should um, rethink this, uh, this massive uh, kind of uh, uh, globalization that uh, the the kind of globalization that we've pursued since the 1960s, to be honest, Uh, we've gone way too far. Uh, and and we, 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 we've pursued this lean and mean supply chain kind of just-in-time yeah. supply yeah. chain. Yeah. Now we need to think about uh, just-in-case supply chains. Now we need to think in terms of resilience. Now we need to think in terms of um, protecting uh, people from these external shocks, um, which means investing in food sovereignty. Uh, actually, food sovereignty doesn't mean you have money to buy food. Food sovereignty means you actually uh have the entire production process from seeds to irrigation to logistics and distribution all the way to the final consumer uh, with the intent of producing affordable food supporting farmers who actually produce the food as opposed to supporting the middlemen who extract from yeah. the production yeah. process um, pretty so- much
1: what the europeans did anyway and then
2: stopped everybody else doing exactly exactly it's actually very interesting to to hear the french uh, minister of agriculture in the last few weeks commenting on on the situation and calming down the the public in france saying don't worry we we have our food sovereignty we've done this since the 1950s we've invested in it so we're not this is not us this is the other countries that have troubles um so it it, it tells me that the, the country as a matter of public policy knows exactly what they've done and why they've done it, um, but prevents other countries from doing it. Um, so w- we need to rethink what what we've done to, to the global economy, not just in terms of food, but energy and so many other things.
1: What are the chances of getting uh, European, American, Australian governments of that kind who at, at, at the moment um, I mean, they might not formally dominate the World Trade Organization, but actually they do, really, as well as, of course, all, all the uh, uh, multilateral trade agreements they have between themselves. And they are all, to a greater or lesser extent, subject to state capture by vested interest. What, what's the chances of actually persuading um, policymakers in these countries to go along with um reviewing as as we desperately need to do the whole relationship between the so-called global north and the global south and trade agreements and everything really
2: yeah well it's it's like moving mountains because we really have to push on on all fronts Um, Mm. so people in the global north that is the public has to contribute to this by pushing policymakers uh to do the right thing and 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 really be able to call their bluff when they're saying we're trying to help uh you're not helping uh if if you're not really repairing the damage if you're not tackling the issue of fossil fuels if you're not tackling the issue of food sovereignty and energy sovereignty in the in the global south if you're pursuing extractive economic relationships with the global south you're not helping you're contributing to the problem so we need policy makers to understand this and we need, uh, you know, activist NGOs uh, and, and constituents in the global north to do this. But also in the global south, we need to have the, the grassroots NGO organizations, civil society and policymakers recognize that they're actually engaging in that relationship because in, mm-hmm. in many cases they see international trade and foreign direct investment and tourism, for example, as a positive contribution from the global yeah. north. Yeah. Uh, so and we have to. The flow um, is the other way around.
0: The global yeah. south um, supports the global north. You are reminding
1: yet. me of another another book now, which is *The Divide* by Jason Hickel, which would exactly. be a great book to read. Yes. Yeah. yeah. On this so, account. so
2: the, the the key answer to to your question, Stephen, is really informing and educating and mobilizing and organizing people so that we can actually push back against the the dominant narrative uh, Mm -hmm. so that we we have a chance at actually changing uh, the system. It's not enough to be angry at the system or angry at politicians, but we have to be able to articulate uh, why the system is not working and be able to demonstrate that a better path is actually within reach, that we're not Mm -hmm. talking about an impossible system where you know there'll be you know some countries will gain and other countries will lose what we're describing here is a system in which everybody will thrive uh, that will provide resilience to everybody that will allow us to phase out fossil fuels and transition to a healthier more sustainable uh, society uh, this morning a, a colleague shared with me a a, a link to a a story that just came out uh, from uh, Deloitte, um, the, the consulting firm. They did a study looking at uh, the 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 cost of climate inaction, and I don't remember the 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 exact number right now, but I think they estimated something like 170 trillion dollars um, uh, for the next uh, 50 years if there's no uh, action, which is the equivalent of two years worth of global GDP um, in, in, in today's, um, you know, uh, dollars, uh, basically. Yeah. So, and, and these are really conservative estimates. <laughs> well, we're not talking about some radical organization that's really trying to inflate the numbers. Uh, mm. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, we're, we're talking about convincing the public and policymakers that the cost of doing nothing is much, much larger than the cost of doing the right thing uh, which is what we've been advocating that's that that that's a good
1: place i think for us to finish the series so i i would like to um thank fadel and stephanie and others for providing the kind of leadership that we need to inspire us all to get behind um, that campaign and i uh, just really finished by saying i've been involved on the edges of the MMT um group I suppose for a few years now and I have seen it change and I've seen the nature of the discussion by activists including people like Steve Grumbean, who talks a lot about this now change as well I stood up in a room not all that many years ago and talked about some of these things and uh, uh, um, had the audience quite <laughs> hostile, actually. But that has all changed now and a lot of the change is down to you, Fadel. So I would like to profoundly thank you for that and thank you for being on the last episode on our series of Modern Money Donuts.
2: Well, thank you very much. You're, you're way too generous and, and you're way too humble about your contribution to, uh, to this effort. Uh, and, and again, for both of you and everybody in Australia, congratulations on the success of civil society, of, of really pushing <laughs> uh, to nudge the political system in the right direction and put climate action at the, mm. at the center of the political process. Uh, uh, that, let's give Gab- we'll give Gabby's
1: friend uh, 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 and former colleague, Senator, as she now is, Barbara Pocock of the Greens, I mentioned as well. It was great to see her elected to Canberra and I can't wait to see what difference she makes to our national uh, contribution. Yes,
0: yes. Well, yes, congratulations to the Greens who got elected. Um, and yeah, it's just um, it's such a big relief now to know that at least the adults are in charge. <laughs> um, and you know, so, uh, Australia is no longer a global embarrassment, or hopefully won't be. Um, and you know, we've got a long way to go, of course, with um, getting. Uh, both uh, uh, large parties in in Australia to commit to to a non non proliferation of fossil fuels. Both of them are still um, you know interested in opening up new coal mines and new gas. So we've got still more work to do. But yeah, we're in a we're in a much better place. And um, yeah, and I think uh, absolutely, Fadel. Um, I remember the first time I heard you give a talk. Um, I was just blown away by how much I learned just in like an hour. It was amazing. It completely changed my views. And um, thank you for being part of this show. And hopefully we'll see you again soon, perhaps on our, our Modern Money Lab courses launch. That would be exciting coming up in a few months. And yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch. And um, thank you for being part of our uh, part of our podcast and for rounding it out with us.
1: And thanks right. again to Curb Rost Media and keep watching their shows. They're great. Yeah. All right. We'll
0: leave it there. Thank you very much, everyone.
1: Right. Thanks again, Fadal. Bye. Thank you. Bye.